1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: The world is still reeling from the savage terror attack that brutalized, raped, murdered and kidnapped Israelis and civilians from at least 25 other countries and from the ongoing war that followed. After Hamas took over Gaza in 2007, some thought the responsibilities of governing would encourage it to become more moderate. That was wishful thinking. The barbaric massacre of October 7, 2023, made it clear that Hamas is a terrorist group intent on destroying Israel and hoping to spark a regional, and perhaps even wider, war. Welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel. Today's guest, Matthew Levitt, is a counterterrorism expert with extensive field experience in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. He's the author of The War Hamas Always Wanted, published in Foreign Affairs in October 2023, an earlier book, Hamas, Politics, Charity, and Terrorism in Service of Jihad, as well as The Road to October 7, Hamas's Long Game, Clarified, published in the Journal of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. Matthew Levitt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Matt, um, what are the core components of Hamas's ideology, and how does its association
1: with the Muslim Brotherhood influence it? So it's important to start and note that Hamas is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it is the most significant Muslim Brotherhood branch that has gone all in uh, in support of violence. Most Muslim Brotherhood uh, organizations around the world, are fundamentalist. They are extreme in their beliefs, uh, but they're not themselves engaged in violence. Hamas turned this on its head. Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, the kind of spiritual leader and founder of Hamas, uh, is one of several who came up with this idea that unlike other Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood organizations that felt that first through proselytizing, through dawah, you had to bring people back to the faith, and only then would people be prepared to create um, uh, Islamic uh, states. Um, Yassin and others in Hamas believe that the um, process of fighting uh, would itself bring people back to the faith. And so these would be two mutually reinforcing uh, activities. Hamas is also unique in that it is a terrorist group, a jihadist group, an Islamist group committed to violence. Uh, but it is also a nationalist group. Um, it is focused on the Palestinian conflict. And there's an interesting academic conversation to be had. If Hamas were to ever succeed in destroying Israel and creating an Islamist state, not a secular one, but an Islamist state in all of what it considers to be historic Palestine, would it then lay down arms or would it move on to the next jihad? Interesting academic debate. The reality is in the moment... Hamas is focused on the Palestinian cause. And traditionally, with a very few exceptions, including one recently in Europe, Hamas has not tried to carry out attacks abroad. That makes it different than the Islamic State. I've, I've, I've cautioned my uh, Israeli friends to stop using the hashtag Hamas is ISIS. Hamas carried out very ISIS-like barbaric attacks on October 7th, but Hamas is actually very different. Uh, than the Islamic State or or Al-Qaeda. And so the bottom line is Hamas wants to destroy Israel and it wants to create an Islamist state in all of what it considers historic Palestine. That means that it is sometimes fighting its Palestinian political rivals like Fatah as much as it is fighting Israel. And it is perpetually fighting against the idea of a two-state solution. In other words, October 7th was not actually about occupation. It was about destroying Israel. And that's why much of the rhetoric that you're hearing post October 7th is referring to any Israeli as a settler. It's not, most of the rhetoric is not talking about 1967, but 1948. And so Hamas is dead set against the peace process. And I think one of the precipitant events for this attack happening when it did was Hamas and its allies in. Hezbollah and its patron in Iran being very, very concerned that the Abraham Accords were ultimately going to expand to include Saudi Arabia and that that would sideline Hamas because it would move things towards some type of two-state solution.
0: Before the chaos of the current war... How did Hamas's governance impact the daily lives of Gazans?
1: Hamas is not a democracy. And so, so long as people did not get in Hamas's way, Hamas uh, let them be. Um, To the extent that people opposed Hamas, whether that was from the right or the left, Hamas cracked down on them. Several years ago, there were al-Qaeda-affiliated Salafi Jihadi groups that popped up in Gaza and took over a mosque and Hamas sent its fighters in and there was a shootout and Hamas dealt with that challenge from the right. When people uh, opposed Hamas from the left, uh, they also um, uh, were dealt with by being jailed, by being prosecuted, persecuted, uh, or even killed. Uh, And so you couldn't be very open about your opposition to Hamas. Now, people were uh, opposed to Hamas quietly. Our think tank conducted a poll last summer uh, where basically we inject questions, serious questions in with questions asking, you know, what type of toothpaste do you like and what type of cracker brand and that type of thing. And what we found is that over 70% of Gazans did not support Hamas, did not want Hamas to remain armed, did not support Hamas attacking Israel. Uh, and I think that too uh, probably um, upset Hamas and decided them to make them do something to change the entire framework of this conflict.
0: When did you do that survey?
1: Not, not me personally, but the Washington you... Institute, I think it was in July or August.
0: Huh. Well, that 70% makes sense to me, given that Sinwar said recently uh, that Hamas was not responsible for 75% of the residents of Gaza, uh, that the world had to take care of them. It was not his affair. Uh, so, Yeah. That make does make
1: yeah, every sense. once in a while Hamas has been very clear about this. Uh, you know, um Hamas Politburo member Khalil Al Haya, who's based in Qatar now, uh, shortly after October seventh, he said something that really resonated with me and underscores what you and I are talking about now. He said and, and I quote, Hamas's goal is not to run Gaza and to bring it water and electricity and such. Hamas, the Qassam and the resistance woke the world up from its deep sleep and showed that this issue must be remain on the table this battle is not because we wanted fuel or laborers it did not seek to improve the situation in gaza this battle is to completely overthrow the situation in other words hamas doesn't see itself as the responsible governing entity with a risk, with with uh, a responsibility to its constituents uh, it sees its control of the Gaza Strip as an opportunity to have safe haven and to use it as a springboard to ultimately be able to attack Israel. Now in the West, we um, we see time differently and um, um, we, we have a hard time understanding when people are very, very patient and plan things over a very, very long time. We're in the West very kind of instant gratification focused. Hamas over 25 years mm. built a military industrial complex. Uh, to be able to build its own sniper rifles, to build its own uh, rockets, and even start to build its own precision-guided missiles. It um, manufactured its own bullets. Uh, Of course, it invested millions and millions and millions of dollars into its tunnel systems, tunnels into Egypt to smuggle goods, tunnels into Israel to carry out attacks, and the tunnels within Gaza, the Gaza Metro as some call it, for the purpose of being able to fight Israel once it drew Israel into a fight, as it ultimately did in October. Um, that is what Hamas saw as its primary mission, not taking care of its constituents.
0: Nevertheless, it's so cynical to use hospitals, schools, and houses of worship as shields for the military. How does Hamas justify its criminal actions against its own people?
1: Well, Western perspective, of course, there is absolutely no way to explain or justify uh, the use of civilians as human shields, firing rockets from residential areas, uh, you know, digging uh, tunnels under and into hospitals and mosques and schools and using these as uh, military uh, locations. And under the rule of law, once a combatant group uses those locations for military purposes, they become legitimate military targets. But this is not something that should be looked at from a Western perspective. This is from the perspective of Hamas. And when you're dealing with a group that believes that um, life is not necessarily uh, preferable to death, that there are bigger ideas and and resistance, muqawama, Um, uh, fighting occupation, as they see it, um, are are larger things, then then there's nothing that isn't justified by the cause. And if there are people that don't get on board with that, then they are the problem. If you don't understand why uh, using a hospital for Hamas's benefit is logical and the right thing to do from Hamas's perspective, then you're part of the problem. Now, what Hamas has done in Gaza is taken this idea and just used it in a much, 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 much larger scale and scope. But Hamas has done this over many, many years and not just in the Gaza Strip. I remember from my time in the FBI, you know, uh, instances where Hamas was, you know, using hospitals in the West Bank as meeting places uh, or... or. uh you know, uh, uh, libraries and other things like that. For for Hamas, the there isn't a difference between military and civilian if it is all actually intended to be resistance. And ultimately, that's what groups like Hamas or Hezbollah in Lebanon want to do is create, and this is their term, not mine, a culture of resistance. And the reason it's so important is not just because it builds grassroots support for the organizations and literally brings them recruits, But if there is a culture of resistance, then everything is there to be used to benefit the
0: resistance. By any means necessary, as protesters say. Yeah,
1: Most of whom don't know what the term means, nor can they identify the river or the sea. There are a lot of useful idiots out there right now. Um, But yeah, for the people who really know what they're talking about, when they say by all means necessary, they mean it.
0: Who supplies Hamas with uh, financial and military support? How do they manage to get the high quality steel and concrete for the elaborate tunnel network and all the
1: weaponry? There's really three questions in there. One is about money, one is about weapons, and one is about steel and concrete uh, and the like. Um, So you know, Hamas uh, material support really changed in 2007. Uh, In 2005, Hamas makes the decision to participate in Palestinian national elections. 2006, they win a majority of the seats in the Palestinian Legislative Council and form a national unity government with Fatah. They tried to use that national unity government to move the PA away from security cooperation with Israel, away from the idea of a two-state solution. So this national unity government was always going to be short-lived, and indeed it was in 2007. Hamas took over the Gaza Strip by force of arms, not from Israel, the Israelis had withdrawn in 2005, but from Fatah, shooting fellow Palestinians, throwing fellow Palestinians from the tops of buildings. And ever since then, you've had this bifurcated Palestinian uh, uh, political reality with Fatah in control of uh, the West Bank and and Hamas uh, running the Gaza Strip. Prior to this, the two main sources of funding for Hamas were Iran. It's a uh, state sponsor from day one when it was established in late 1987 through to today. And Today, the estimates are that Iran provides Hamas somewhere between 70 and 120 million dollars. It fluctuates, but sort of been towards the higher end in recent times. And prior to 2007, the other source was abuse of charity, including charities in, in the West. Some of the most important were in places like the United Kingdom and in Germany and here in the United States, which is where I am sitting while I'm talking to you. In 2007, they suddenly found themselves in control of territory and able to run a government. And as we saw perhaps more clearly later in the case of the Islamic State, when a militant group controls territory, it's able to make a lot of money off that territory. Most people focused in the Islamic State case on the fact that the territory it controlled was resource risk. And so it made a lot of money from oil and gas. A lot of people don't realize that the Islamic State made almost as much money from taxation, extortion, control of customs, etc., as it did from resources. So even in a fairly small economy like the Gaza Strip, which is about a billion-dollar economy, um, Hamas was able to make a tremendous amount of money, um, hundreds of millions of dollars, by taxing and extorting uh, controlling the borders above ground, below ground, allowing criminal organizations to continue running their smuggling tunnels into Egypt, so long as they paid Hamas, uh, this was became the the premier source of funds for Hamas, and it made moving money into the Gaza Strip a lot easier. If you think about, you know, something like trade based money laundering, where I, I don't send you ten dollars, but I send you ten dollars of something that's otherwise legitimate, like rice. Or sugar or wheat. Um, you know, It was the Israeli government policy for years until October 7th to buy calm by ensuring that there was enough economic opportunity in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and therefore, no one was interested in stopping the flow of uh, staples uh, into the Gaza Strip. But indeed, um, the Israeli government policy allowed the government of Qatar to provide salaries and fund uh, electricity uh, in the Gaza Strip, which not only provided Hamas funds, but funds that they could, they could tax. When international aid organizations provided aid, Hamas would tax or take some of that. Iran continued to provide funds and especially to provide weapons. Uh, this is something that happened over many years. Uh, there were several Iranian weapon smuggling ships that were stopped over the years, but clearly some others got through. I've been to Israel since October 7th, and I've seen a weapons display that the IDF has of weapons used during October 7th. Many of the Kalashnikov and other uh, rifles, many of the RPGs are old, still working, but they were old. And so the assumption is they came in over a period of time. But what Iran really did then is, you know, uh, train the trainer, they, they taught uh, Hamas how to manufacture their own weapons. Um. Hamas continued to abuse charity and to increasingly engage in crowdfunding, which is something that is on the rise right now, Uh, typically is, whenever there is uh, a crisis. Um, And then finally, we've seen Hamas's Finance and Investment Committee uh, exposed over the past few months by the U.S. Treasury Department and others. That is about a $500 million enterprise, though much of it is not Liquid cash, and so it's 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 more money on paper than it actually was coming in into Hamas on a on a regular basis. So there's a variety of ways that Hamas got money in. The weapons primarily came from Iran and then from their own domestic production, and then finally, you know, COGAT, uh, which you know oversees the civilian aspects of needs in Gaza and the West Bank uh, within the IDF, would meet with the Europeans and others on a regular basis. To see, you know, when Hamas said they needed, you know, 80 miles uh, worth of pipes for a desalinization plant, was that legitimate? Did they in fact need it? Was it really 80 miles or was it 50 miles? And then, even if it turned out that they really needed it and it really was 80 miles, what kind of, of guarantees could be put in place that this 80 miles of piping would actually be used for its intended purpose and not taken by Hamas? And at the end of the day, because people wanted to see to the needs of civilians in Gaza, these things were typically approved. Um, And we know that uh, after October 7th, uh, for example, one of the first things Hamas did is went and started digging up these pipes, and they do it to be able to manufacture crew rockets out of them. After each of the rocket wars that Hamas initiated with Israel, uh, Hamas asked the international community to rebuild uh, the Gaza Strip, and each time the international community tried to put more um, checks in place to make sure that the Uh, cement that was being brought in was used to repair buildings and not dig tunnels. But it's simply impossible to be able to keep track of all of it. And because the IDF has now gone in to dismantle the Hamas governance project in Gaza, we now are beginning to get all kinds of pictures of uh, how long, how many miles long these tunnels are, how sophisticated they are. And picture after picture of... um, uh, international aid uh, sacks being used in the construction uh, of these uh, of these tunnels, in particular.
0: Gaza has a very young population. Uh, tell us a bit about their education under the Hamas regime.
1: So part of building a culture of resistance is uh, teaching uh, the next generation to understand that uh, fighting. Uh, your enemy is the single most important thing and a key, a key type of of ritual. Um, and so, Hamas schools, um, in particular, uh, were notorious for uh, teaching hate. This happened in the schools run by UNRWA as well. And so, again, because the uh, IDF has gone into Gaza and has uh, gone into Uh, schools and homes. Uh, Practically a day does not go by without new pictures coming out of puzzles that children were using with uh, featuring uh, children with weapons attacking Israel from the sea and from the land, of uh, weapons being hidden in nursery schools or children's bedrooms, of the anti-Israel and anti-Semitic content in children's textbooks. For Hamas, this is a critically important component of what they're trying to do, again, because they play a long game. This is not America or Europe that is focused on instant gratification, and anything that's planned more than a month or two out is long-term planning. This is Hamas's long game. And it explains uh, why they are able, despite the fact that they put Palestinian civilians at risk on a daily basis— Uh, to be able to recruit the next generation of fighters. And speaking of the long game, what
0: do you anticipate will be the long-term repercussions of uh, the current war on Hamas's political, military, and general position in the
1: region? I think there are two ways to answer this question. One is the impact on Hamas, and the, the second is the larger impact. Look, I think that the Israelis right. definitely have the capability of dismantling the Hamas governance project in Gaza. Um, I've recommended to every Israeli who will listening to stop talking about destroying Hamas. You're not going to destroy Hamas any more than the global coalition to defeat the Islamic State destroyed the Islamic State. What we did against the Islamic State, what Israel can do against Hamas is inflict territorial defeat. Um, there will still be Hamas members in Gaza. Um, they will be operating in small cells, they will not be organized, they will not be bureaucratized, they will not have a military-industrial complex, they will be underground, as they have been, for example, in the West Bank uh, for years now. Uh, Hamas will continue to function that way uh, in the West Bank, and indeed Hamas has taken time and effort under the leadership of the late Salah al who was recently killed in Beirut, uh, to build up a Hamas military component in Lebanon, and that will continue to exist, as will Hamas external leadership, whether it remains in Qatar or in Turkey or is limited to Lebanon and Iran, that will remain. The goal, I think, is not to defeat, destroy, annihilate, end terrorism, but to cut it down at its knees and to constrict the operating environment and make terrorism a much smaller problem terrorism becomes a much bigger problem when it's institutionalized, when it has safe haven, when it can train and radicalize and arm over time. I think that's the lesson that the Israelis learned in a very painful way on October 7th, not only in terms of Hamas in Gaza, but also Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon. And I think that we're going to see attention turn north uh, very quickly, not only because Israel as a government and a society, wants to enable its citizens to, from the north to, who have been evacuated to return home, but because they are no longer willing to live uh, you know, feet across the border from uh, Hezbollah deployed uh, um, so thoroughly uh, along the blue line uh, after seeing that uh, Hamas used what was really Hezbollah's playbook on October 7th to storm across the border. More broadly, I think that the Hamas attack on October 7th has galvanized militants and terrorists around the world, from the Islamic State and al-Qaeda's to the Hezbollah's and Iran's across the Sunni-Shia divide, all the way to the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists and the militants in the far left. Um, They see that uh, violence can work, that this successfully put the Palestinian issue back on the front burner that the vaunted Israeli military security and intelligence system could be penetrated. Um that uh um uh from their perspective, therefore uh terrorism can work. Not in the sense necessarily of getting your ultimate goal done. October seventh did not create a Palestinian state, um, but in terms of uh giving life and oxygen to to your movement. And so I think that um much beyond Hamas, October 7th is going to be a phenomenon that we're going to be dealing with more broadly. We've seen people in in Europe uh, plotting more attacks, Islamic State and Al Qaeda, trying to inspire people to carry out attacks uh, inspired by October 7th. We've seen that on the far right as well. We saw someone from uh, a resident of New Jersey, here in the United States, decide to try and go join al-Shabaab in Somalia, Inspired by Hamas on October 7th. So we're in for a little bit of a bumpy ride.
0: Yeah, we already have the Houthis getting into the game. So, yeah, yeah.
1: I think the but- fact that, you know, we have allowed Shia militants in Iraq to fire at US forces so many times with so few responses, the fact that the Houthis, who are not the most capable transnational organizations have been able to shut down international shipping, is telling. I refer to Hamas as the runt of the Iran threat network. If little Hamas is able to bring the region to what hopefully will only be the brink of regional war, then I think we all need to come to terms with what Iran's proxies together can do. And remember that that was the goal of the late Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds Force who was killed four years ago January, the uniting of the fronts, as he put it. And that's something that we can't tolerate, and that failing to act on it now, allowing it to uh, to get legs, has consequences. Hamas should never have been allowed to get to the point that it was on October 7th in the Gaza Strip. Hezbollah should never have been allowed to get to the point that it is with some 150 to 200,000 rockets pointed at Israel to Israel's north either.
0: What mistakes do you think the international community makes in its assessment of Hamas?
1: Look, before we get to the mistakes that the international community made with Hamas, I think we need to start with the mistakes that Israel made with Hamas. Okay. Uh, Israel had for years a policy of buying calm Israel for years believed, was lulled into believing that Hamas prioritized its governance project in Gaza, and that it had been, to a certain extent, either moderated or co-opted by governance. Uh, Israeli authorities would often tell me that Yehi Sinwar was um, a militant, but he was a pragmatist. Well, they now admit, I've met with some of those same people who told me that over the years since October 7th, they now admit they were wrong. And I think the international community largely follows Israel's lead on those groups that primarily only target Israel. That's first. Second, I think that the international community, for very legitimate reasons, uh, didn't kind of say, oh, Hamas is okay, but Hamas dropped down the priority list by virtue of Al-Qaeda and then the Islamic State in a very big way, and then... uh, white supremacists and neo-Nazi extremists presenting tremendous threats in the West in ways that Hamas does not. Hamas at its peak is providing tremendous financial and other support to the group in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, from the West, but primarily, with rare exception, is not targeting the West. That may now change. Um, I think the biggest thing with the West in general is thinking that Militant groups that are not targeting them in the moment are just not so much of a problem. And what we're realizing is that they are a problem not only because they can be targeting only someone else today, but then more of us tomorrow, but they also severely undermine regional and international peace. And a little group like Hamas that may not have been carrying out terrorist attacks in the United States... Killed a whole bunch of Americans on October 7th, kidnapped almost a, about a dozen Americans on October 7th, and has now severely undermined US, European, everybody's international security because of what now is happening in the Middle East. And so I think we need to broaden our perspective on how we understand our threats.
0: Uh, finally, Matt, despite the fact that we're in the midst of the fog of war, Uh, U.S. and others are pressing Israel for an idea of the day after. You talked about what ought not to happen, what uh, Gaza and Hamas should be unable to do. What, If you were in the position of having to respond to that pressure, what thoughts would you share about what should happen in Gaza and the Gazan people after this war ends?
1: This gets very sensitive very quickly. In a general sense because of the uh deep division especially within israel over the idea of a two state solution the idea of withdrawing from territory which traditionally has not gone well whether from southern lebanon or from the gaza strip and also because uh the netanyahu led government is a is a right-wing government with some extreme right-wing people in the government um, and who don't want to talk about this at all um i think the reality is that israel should not Want to control the Gaza Strip. The idea of deporting people, Palestinians from the Gaza Strip, is, I find, disgusting. Um, There should be some type of Palestinian rule there. It cannot be uh, Hamas. We're going to need to have uh, some type of international support, uh, both in terms of security and governance to be able to build something new. What we need to push back on is, I think, what Hamas really wants next, which is. For Hamas to be able to take a larger role within the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, um, and create for itself a space like Hezbollah has in Lebanon, where it can be both a part of a Palestinian government and an independent militant organization that is apart from the government. So in Lebanon, Hamas, uh, excuse me, Hezbollah has ministers in the government. It has parliamentarians in the parliament. But they answer primarily to Nasrallah, who's the head of Hezbollah and does not have a role in government. And it's Hezbollah that makes decisions of life and death, war and peace for Lebanese, not the Lebanese government. That's what Hamas wants um, within the Palestinian political system. And that's what cannot be tolerated. Uh, I think we need to go back to uh, the precept of the Oslo Accords in this one area, where it was very clear to the Oslo Accords that no one should be allowed to participate in government that um, denies the principles of the Oslo Accords or is committed to the destruction of one another. Um, Hamas should never, under the Oslo Accords, been allowed to run for office in 2005-2006. And uh, what I don't hope to see is Uh, Israelis moving back into the Gaza Strip, the Israeli military being responsible for the Gaza Strip. I don't see that working well. I do think that the uh, Israeli security system then is also going to have to pivot away from an over-reliance on technology. Um, Many uh, soldiers had moved away from the Gaza border into the West Bank, um, and there was a hubris that basically felt that little Hamas could never figure out our systems and could never overwhelm us, and that proved to be painfully wrong.
0: That's very true. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Matt, and for your important work. Keep it up. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.